Lucky you. 36 you best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about Sandy. golf. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> so welcome to Alternate Shots Podcast. Billy and I are thrilled to be here with you again. Today, we're going to feature number three, West which uh, is called Pinnacle, and we'll get into the reason why it might be called Pinnacle. The picture here, we're going to get back back to this picture here. This is sort of a tease. You're not only uh, frustrated enough to go get a drink of water after <clears throat> playing one and two, I often go over there just to get out of earshot of the people who are giving me a hard time for how badly I played the hole. <laughs> but this part three is really no consolation. It looks easy enough. But it plays, uh, it's 243 from the tips, which again, I, they have to take their word for that. I would never play there. And then as you get closer, it's 218 from the black tees and then 192 from the white tees, which is where most of us generally play. And as everybody knows, Billy Casper won the US Open by laying up on this hole. <clears throat> what people might not realize is what you see there now isn't what the hole looked like when Casper played it. There were trees encroaching left and right side so that uh, they even branches that hung over those bunkers. So if you missed it left or right, you had quite an ordeal ahead of you. It wasn't as simple as it looks now, even though it's not simple anyway. And it's most members lay up whether they want to or not, uh, because it's a very difficult reach on that green. And it's a very it's called pinnacle because it sits up there and there's, it's a back to front tilt. There's a lot of break in it. You find yourself in that bunker and you're above average or an average bunker player. That pin location isn't the worst thing you've ever seen. It looks tight to the left side, but so many people will splash it out. It'll go up that hill and come back. And you're going to, yeah. no matter how you do it, you might end up with a six or a five or four footer, which is pretty good, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I haven't thought of it in terms of all 36 holes, but I'm never flabbergasted when I hit it either in the left or right bunker, because I know you can use the green to your advantage out of those bunkers, regardless of where the pin is. I mean, some are easier than others, but where it is right now, the left front bunker is really not a bad place to be. And if you can hit the ball, like some of the guys I play with out of a bunker, uh, it's guaranteed what we call Sandy. And me, I, I, like I say, nine times out of 10, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up short anyway, or just on the front where it might trickle off. And as long as it's between those bunkers, I'm okay. But like I say, if it's in one of those bunkers, it's not the end of the world. They used to say in the old days in the open, if you finish the first four holes at Wingfoot, one over par, you were doing fabulous yeah. for laid up here. I think the story is he laid up with a five iron, kind of just uh, past that fairway bunker on the left. And then he chipped up. And of course, he one putted every day. He had something like 27 Average 27 putts around, a little more than that, in the 1959 Open, which is unheard of. Today, uh, Billy Casper probably wouldn't lay up because, again, if you're a little right or a little left, it's not like it used to be. When the trees were there, I mean, those trees were right up to the bunkers. The branches were hanging over. Yeah. It was it, Risk-reward was a lot different uh, back then, missing it left or right. What do you think is the toughest pin placement on this hole? Toughest pin placement on this hole... And let's just say the greens are running 12 or 12 and a half or 13, right? The front right, they put the pin right, yep. right on the shelf in the front right. You can see it just over that front right bunker to have a chance to make par, I think, when they're that fast is right there in the front middle or the front left and you're putting up to it. 
and you better get up to the shelf. And now you have a one or two foot, three foot putt for par, or maybe you've hit it right line and you hit the right speed and you make two, but there's no tougher spot there. Anytime you're in the middle of the green or past the green, you face putting off the green. If you don't hit the hole, you almost have to play defensively to the left and lag it in there so that it just creeps down. But if you're just off a little bit, you come down into the fairway. And the thing about that is that it, that pin placement doesn't look as intimidating from the tee as it actually turns out to be. When they put it in the back right, up there behind in line with that tree over the right-hand bunker, that looks scary from the tee. And it can be scary. If you're above, if you're above it there, you have to be very careful because it's so quick. And if you're below it, you got to go up. It goes up and down and up. So you have to, you know, understanding the speed is very, very important on that green. Pretty cool house behind that green, too. Nice house. We won't say who owns it, but this past open, he set up a little grandstand and coolers, and there were a bunch of members who got to sit there and watch everybody play that hole. There were a few frescas. There were a few. um, In the 70s, 50 years ago, a guy named Eddie Basso owned the house. And Eddie Basso was one of the finest players at Wingfoot. We were talking to Billy about coming uh, as one of the few honorary members uh, at Wingfoot. You we men- mentioned um, uh, Arnold Palmer was made an honorary member. Well, a number of years ago, half a dozen years ago or so, we made Billy an honorary member. And he told us a story about the three majors he won the most, even though he came back from miles behind at Olympic and beat Arnold Palmer, that was significant. But winning at Wingfoot was more significant because I think he had more than one person to beat and geez there was just everybody Claude Harmon was playing in it he finished third every every good player that he admired played in it but he hit the ball one putted 15 he one putted 16 he one putted 17 this is all in the third round he won 18 I don't know if they were pars or birdies but he one putted them all this was telling us a story and so the Sunday they were going out they normally play on Sundays but they did because the weather delayed everything it's going off on the first hole and Frank Stranahan came out to watch him or actually came out and watched him tee off. He said, what are you doing, Frank? He said, I thought I'd come up here and watch Hogan. I'm going to follow around Ben Hogan because he's going to win the U.S. Open, yeah. the 1959 U.S. Open. Ha, ha, ha. So what happens? Stranahan goes down the first hole, which we just covered, that 460-yard par, 50-yard par four. Billy Casper gets in the hole one putts. He one putts two. He won putts three, as we talked about. He won right. putt four for birdie, and he won putted five. He had nine one putts in a row from the finish of his third round to the first five holes of his final round, and that's why he won the U.S. Open. Nine, putt, nine one putts in any one round is astronomical. And but in a row, row is, is ridiculous. And the greens are slick. They were hard to read. It's time to buy a lottery ticket because everything's going to buy a lottery ticket. The cute story is Frank Stranahan never left Billy Casper's side that whole 18 holes and followed him the whole time. Never saw Ben Hogan hit a shot. Again, it wouldn't be my first hole at Wingfoot of the eight par threes to choose if I had to make a par for my life. What about you? I, you know, I don't know which one. I, I, every time you think of them, there's, I don't think any of them are easy. So no, this would, I certainly, I don't think I walk away with an abundance of pars here, but there are a few other par threes where, which I would, take this over if I was, you know, if I had to bet on which one I'm going to park. Now, right? when you have that north wind, you're sometimes hitting a three wood, maybe a driver. I hit, I hit three wood back, there right? most of the time now. Yeah. Three wood. Now I do. 
And I and well, I, I tend to hit a high cut with the three wood. So when the pin's over there, it's a little nerve wracking. We're actually with a pin in the back right, which I said looks intimidating from the tee, actually fits my eye because that's where the, my ball flight ends up uh, being the right flight for that hole. But I still end up, you know, I'd say I hit that green 30% of the time, maybe, maybe 40. This bunker here on the left wasn't here a number of years ago, but it was put back in in the restoration. That was apparently, I think Neil brought that up, your brother. The short, the short one. Design. Yeah. yeah, it really is a pretty, pretty hole. Much yeah. of the bunkers are for your, for, for the eye, not to, you know, to guide the eye or fool the eye or, you know, there's several other places like that. And that's that's the genius of Tillinghast and the great architects is they 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 use the contours and they make it pleasing to the eye. They basically inviting in their own way. Well, in 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 the one wonders, the eye wonders, it's there. I don't want to miss it there. So what is yeah. sub? It's making it's it's steering your eye over to the other side where you then you see the, all those other bunkers. So one other thing that we don't see very often at Wingfoot while we're on three West, which is out of bounds. You don't see that very much in play three. And we'll talk about four. There's a little out of bounds, but occasionally you see somebody go, oh, go out of bounds here, but it's not usually on the tee shot, right? Sometimes they'll blade a second shot from the left, yeah. and the right. And they'll find themselves in the backyard of that beautiful right. uh, home back there. Right. <laughs> Yeah, they'll they'll pull an evil Knievel and you know bolt the whole thing. Yeah. So again, Wingfoot's uh, what you see. Everything's in front of you. There's no blind shots. There's really no water. There's really no out of bounds. And, and in all 36 holes, you really don't see very much. You know, now and then somebody will yank something way offline, but into somebody's yard. But for the most part, in all the rounds I play, I don't see a lot of out of bounds anywhere. Duck hook it left, or push slice it right. So the left is the fourth hole and some tees over there, right? Yeah. And then the right is the seventh hole. And if you get it really bad right or really bad left, you might have to punch something just to get it in the bunker, then hopefully get yeah. it up for a par no. right. Bogey. Yeah, there's no, there's, you're, you're, you're praying for bogey if you've hit it far left or far right. And it's, I think especially far left, you see those trees on the left over there. And it's just, it's a scary looking shot when you get there. And and you think flop shot, but those are hundred foot trees. Yeah, no, you got to It's going to have to go over the bunker, but under the trees. So, if hit it over there, you 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 probably cursed after you hit it. You do that, someone says double. Why don't you tell us a little bit uh, some of your stories about horse racing and maybe delve into the uh, topic of handicapping? As you say, they they go hand in hand, right? Yeah, that's the whole thing about horse racing. Is it it's a science in a way, the handicapping, but there's so many figures so many so much information that you can refer to fractional times distances track conditions and all that stuff it would take a year to explain and and 20 years to learn and you're still you know everybody has a system and everybody's system works for one race and not the second race so everybody thinks you know my system worked well it worked that race but it didn't what about the other eight races it didn't work anymore <clears throat> <laughs> That's the unique thing about it. But I was turned on to racing back in the 70s. You know, uh, Secretariat caught my eye, like caught everybody's. And then Seattle slew a few years later. And then a good friend of mine from high school, Watson, I, I referred to him before, turned me, got me seriously into the handicap. He taught me how to handicap. He also turned me on to the Allman Brothers. And we're still friends. And every time there's a big race, we're texting back and forth. 
Uh, and we went up to Saratoga together and, you know, I saw my first catastrophe there where umbrella man fell and broke his leg and it made me sick to my stomach to see. So you get the ups and the downs, but there is no elation like the elation of handicapping a horse race and being right. And there was one big race, particularly it was back when Affirmed and Ali Dar were running. Mm-hmm. And Ali Dar was running in the Whitney Handicap at Saratoga, which was a mile and an eighth, a big stakes race. And a horse from California named J.O. Tobin was all the rage and he was winning everything he did and he was a speed horse. And I could not decide between these two horses. I was laboring over this for so long and it, you know, I get stumped and then you say, what the hell, I'll bet one or the other, but I couldn't figure this out. Ali Dar was so good coming from behind. J.O. Tobin was so good from coming from the front end. I couldn't pick them apart. And then I finally, I, I noticed in the handicapping and the, in the daily racing form, that a good percentage of J.O. Tobin's races, he went wide at the top of the stretch. So as he was turning for home, he would he would drift out. And I said, you know what? That's going to open up a hole for Ali Darn with his stretch run. He'll run right through that hole. So I settled on Ali Darn. Damned if the race didn't happen exactly like that. Tobin leading the whole way, goes wide at the turn, and Ali Darn shoots up the thing. And I, I thought, I'm a magician. I, I'm, I'm the Cecil B. DeMille's of horse racing. I can make them stop. I can make them go. Of course, I learned later that, you know, that doesn't always work. And then I went to work in, uh, at uh, Channel 9 in New York in Times Square, and there was an OTB right across the street. And some of the guys at, the, at, at Channel 9, you know, got into the horse racing with me. And, you know, we'd pick daily doubles and stuff. And I'd go shooting across whenever I had a minute to, to OTB and make the bets. And that's where I ran into a guy named Lewis. And Lewis was an enterprising man, a city guy, very streetwise. And he was just a bookie. He was booking horse racing. And back when OTB was in Manhattan before they ran themselves out of business, OTB would pay, would take a, a, a percentage of the payout of a winning ticket. Some, some 17% on some bets, 10% on other bets. So in essence, if you want to race at OTB, you got paid less than if you wanted at the track. So Lewis, being a smart streetwise guy, decided to try and get all our business by paying track prices. So he wore this Popeye hat with the rim turned down. He had a toothpick in his mouth. He couldn't see his eyes. He jean jacket, talked out of the side of his mouth. And he was right out of Damon Runyon character. And I got to know him. And I found out that the one thing about Lewis was he always paid. And the reason I found that out was because I asked him, you know, I understand you pay the track prices, but what if it's a big price? I, I play crazy exactas, you know, what if my exact, I'll play a $20 exacta if it pays, you know, 240 bucks, that's 2,400 bucks. Do you, do you cover that? And he said, if they're long shots, I put them in at the window. And if you're lucky enough to win, then I just have to make up the takeout difference. I cash my OTB ticket and I make up, make up the difference. So I said, oh, fantastic. So I got to know him very well well enough that I actually ended up putting him out of business at the end of the day because he took one of my bets and didn't put it in at the window. And sure enough, he owes me $2,400. And as God is my witness, Lewis always paid. And, and he didn't have the money and he shows up on Thursday with a broken arm. And he pays me the 2400 bucks. And I said, what happened? You fall down the stairs? He said, Billy, in my business, sometimes I got to borrow from the wrong guys. <laughs> if I don't pay him, this is what happens. I said, so wait, you, they broke your arm and you're paying because you're paying me the money instead of them. He says, yeah, but I owe you the money. 
and I always pay my. So I said, so what happens next? He says, well, if I don't have the money by next Thursday, they'll break my other arm. So I said, get the hell out of here. I said, you keep the money. You owe me. I'm not going to break your arm. You could pay me when you can. That was the last time he booked a bet. But two days later, or maybe three days later, he calls me at my home. And I lived in Eastchester at the time. And Watson had stayed overnight. And Lewis calls and says, do you have a racing form? I said, I'm, I didn't go out of business, Lewis. I, <laughs> I have a racing form every day. Yeah. He says, check out this third race. There's a horse named Zeb's Hellcat. I'll never forget this as long as I live. So I looked at him. He was a maiden, which means he hadn't won a race yet. And he had been running down at Laurel Park in Maryland. And he had run two races and he'd come from nowhere and finished third in both races. And now he's running at Belmont. Lewis says, I think you should get your money down on this because there's been about six other bookies that I know that have called me trying to lay off bets that the owner's making or the trainer or somebody's making bets on this horse. And they don't want to put it in at the window because it'll drive the odds down. I tell this to Watson and we hop in the car, we go over to OTB and we're like, this is great. The horse will sit in the back of the pack and catch all these other speedball maidens. No, none of them have ever won a race. So we put, I, I put $40 on the horse at the time, which was a lot of money for me. And <clears throat> the race goes off and they're, and they're off. Zeb's Hellcat sprints to an early lead. We're, we're looking at each other. Oh my God. This is a stretch runner. He's going to run him out early. As they go to the far turn, Zeb's Hellcat by three lengths. Top of the stretch, it's Zeb's Hellcat now by six lengths. And we're like, what's going on? He ends up winning the race by eight or nine lengths and he paid 18 dollars to win we're looking at each other like wow so lewis still owed me this money and he gave me a couple more tips the next couple of days and they all came in so i basically got my money back from his tips but then he went over he tried a couple of other businesses and he ended up in the uh ticket broker business scalping uh <clears throat> and i'm at this, this is back point, in you did you still consider him in debt to you? Or no, he, he's a, he, I, I, he was off the hook with me the whole time. He, he was just such an honorable, good guy. And he was down on his luck, but he, he was so honest. And, and, and coming from that streetwise background and, you know, a tough life, you know, I, I, I admired him. I, God bless him. Rest in peace. I still admire him. Um, so, no, I was never going to lean on him. But, you know, I felt like he, he, he still owed me the money. He was, he was still said, I still owe you that money. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get it. So we, when he went in the ticket business, uh, I called him one day. I was like, any, any shot at getting uh, some Springsteen tickets at the Meadowlands? He goes, I got five in the fifth row. You want those? <laughs> I said, how much? He said, Billy, I still owe you. I said, but what would you sell them for? He said, they'd, they'd usually be about 200 a piece. I said, okay, so charge me the 200, take it off what I owe you. Then I got seventh row with Clapton and, and, and <clears throat> that settled the debt. So now you fast forward five years and somebody calls me and says, do you know anybody that um, wants Super Bowl tickets? I've got 10 pretty good seats. I said, I know a guy who sells them. So <clears throat> I call Lewis and said, Lewis looks on the chart. He says, I'll give him uh, 700 a piece for the, for the tickets. So the guy says, he'll take the 700. I get the tickets. I go down to Lewis's apartment in the city. He says, I don't keep any money here. I'll have to send the money over to your office later. I said, fine. So we had coffee and donuts. We caught up on some old times. And then I went to work and a guy calls me. Did you get the, did you get rid of the tickets? I said, yeah. He says, did you get the money? I said, 
I didn't get it yet. He's sending it down. He said, you gave him the tickets without getting the money. And I thought right then, I was like, what was I thinking? How could I leave him with? And then I realized the guy got his arm broken to pay me a horse bet. He's not, he's not going to rip me off. No. And while I'm on the phone with the guy, a messenger comes in with 7,000 in cash. So <laughs> that was Lewis. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to tell that story because the guy deserved having a story. He was so enterprising and such a, a you know, a treat and all the characters at OTB, not just the guys I knew at, at, at Channel 9, but from all over. We're betting with Lewis. Lewis is hanging out in front. He's got the paper and the toothpick and people are making bets. And he's, you know, it was right out of a, almost out of a screwball comedy, but yeah. a good man. And uh, at the end of the day, I called his number one day. I got somebody else. I was like, where's Lewis? Lewis ain't going to be answering the phone anymore is all I got. And they wouldn't tell me why. So. And this picture is awesome. I, I think you sent me this picture. It's just unbelievable how, look at the muscles on these horses and, and, and the uh, jockeys, they, these horses are going, you know, 40, 45 miles an hour. And it's yeah, noisy okay. and they're bumping and it's crowded and, you, you know, they have to squeeze through a little hole sometimes. It, it's the, they're very, uh, it's a very dangerous for the, for the jockeys, this sport. So let's talk about, you went to the paddocks, I guess it was at Belmont, third race of the Triple Crown, you tell. Right. I know that much about horse racing. It's a longer race than the others. Mile and a half, and they're three-year-olds. They've mostly never run that. Derby, then two weeks to the Preakness, then three weeks to the Belmont. Sir Winston. Oh, Sir Winston. So I'll, I'll, Sir Winston is the horse you sent me a picture of. So tell me what you saw when you went to the paddock before the horse raced, right? Not after. Oh, before, yeah. No. And you can't, you can always go down to the paddock, but you're fenced out. But I was with somebody that got us inside, so I... I got close-ups of these things, and I snapped a shot of Sir Winston, who I happened to like in the race, and a few of us liked him, and he ended up winning at a good price. Uh, yeah, that was fun. And this is not an everyday race. This is one of the top three races. Yeah. Arguably the best race in all of horse racing, right? They call it the test of the champion. Um, the, the spectrum in horse racing is the cheaper the race, the less reliable the information about him is. So these horses usually run what they would call true to form when they're at this level. So you can look at their past performances and you can see their consistency of what they're good at. You might find out they don't like it sloppy or whatever, but they're generally going to run a race that you kind of expect them to run. Whereas at the cheap tracks with the cheap horses, you just never know. The horse might be good one day and not, not the next. Just So that's why the best race horse racing is in New York and California and, and now Kentucky because the purses are bigger. So the better trainers and the better horses go go to these tracks. And the Belmont Stakes, if you're a trainer, the, Bel the Kentucky Derby Preakness and Belmont are three of your top priorities. Now there's the Breeders' Cup in, in recent years that, you know, you'd like to win that too. But until the Breeders' Cup, those three races, probably the Derby, Preakness, probably Derby first, Belmont second, Preakness third would be, you know, your, your wish list. Been to the Preakness and I've been to the Belmont 20 times or 25 times. I've never been to the Kentucky Derby. And I say, I'm not going until, you know, somebody with carte blanche takes me. So, so I don't have to I deal with it. Billy's on the sled going down and back and not having to bother with all the mud and whatever else goes on there. Three West is uh, the first par three that we've covered at Wingfoot. Covered two par fours in the par three. Have you made a hole in one? Have you come close to making one on three? I, I have not made one and I, I I've come close sort of 
but not as close as my partner and the member guest one year. And he's not a good golfer. And he hit a probably as good a shot as he could hit. He could never reach that green, but he hit a nice low line drive and it rolled up and the pin was where we were looking at it. And that thing rolled up and came back and almost, he was about an inch and a half from the hole. Oh, I, I wish to this day that he'd made it. He would, you know, he, it would have been something he already will never forget the shot in the first place. And I'll never forget it because it, I think we won our flight that back and uh, pretty shortly and follow up with four West. We've got some exciting stories on four West till next time, Billy. It's been real. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper. today. Billy Harmon. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Arky. subscribe to Two the show. Adder. And hit Claude the bell Harmon. icon so you get notified. Movie classics. New episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.